Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I'm joined for a very special interview on the intellectual foundations of Trumpism. The person that I'm speaking to is a young and ambitious new entrant into the American media market, Julius Krein, who has set up the American Affairs, the Journal of American Affairs, which is uh, an attempt to establish an intellectual foundation for Trumpism. Uh, He's only 30 years old and has been compared to William Buckley, who tried to do a similar uh, enterprise uh, several decades ago uh, with the National Review, setting up the intellectual foundations of an earlier era of American conservatism. And uh, the journal was launched on the 21st of February and is starting to have an impact both in debates in the United States, but also attracting attention around the world. So, Julius, um, why don't we start with the idea of an intellectual foundation for Trumpism? Is that just an oxymoron? Well, it depends what you mean by it. Um, of course, the this project was provoked by Trump, provoked by the issues that he raised during the last um, presidential campaign that actually had not been a major part of our politics uh, and which he sort of criticized the traditional bipartisan policy consensus on, um, namely issues such as trade, immigration, um, sort of foreign policy adventurism, uh, other aspects of what has sort of come to be called the neoliberal policy consensus, which if Trump ran against anything coherent, he ran against that. Now, does that mean that this project somehow speaks for the White House or represents Trump or anything? No, um, there's no no real connection there other than the kind of potential overlap um, uh, on, on these issues, but there's no formal link or anything. Uh, so this is really a group of people that maybe in many cases have been thinking about these issues for a while, um, but for which there was not really an institutional forum um, or, or um, platform. Uh, and this att- is an attempt to, to offer one uh, and really unite people from both the, uh, both the right and actually the left uh, in an attempt to define a new centrism, a new sort of communitarian consensus in opposition to the neoliberal consensus that I would like to hope might, um, might influence um, uh, the, the administration or maybe provide some policy ideas for them. Um, but at this point, I, I, I could not say that, that there's any evidence for that. So if we stay at this sort of level of ideas, we talked about some of the things that this is a reaction against, which is essentially, I suppose, about globalization, free markets, free movement of labor and immigration, the idea of an international system which is governed by in- institutions. What, what, what are you actually for if, if those are the things that you're raising questions about? What takes the place of, of that consensus that you're trying to displace? Well, I think um, you know, the easiest way to define it is sort of a, a reintegration of the economy within the political society or political community. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that that's an easy or obvious thing. Um, and there's a lot of work to do to figure out exactly the, the best way to do that. But it does, it does take the form of, um, you know, on trade, less abstractions about free markets and, and the sort of Anglo-American ideology of free markets going back to Ricardo, which I think doesn't actually 
uh, reflect the economic realities operating in the world and more of an attempt to sort of capture and retain the high value parts of the value chain for your American companies and your American workers, which is pretty much what everyone else does. Um, it's in, in foreign policy, again, it's an overused term uh, and maybe an ill-defined term, but this attempt to redefine realism and an attempt to orient foreign policy around the basis of concrete uh, national interests rather than sort of abstract ideas of either democracy promotion on the right or responsibility to protect on the left, um, both of which may be good intention, but the results um, have not been very good. Uh, and then, uh, as you also mentioned, there's, there's an, been an odd trend for the last several decades. Um, of, on the one hand, the unelected regulatory apparatus of the state increasing in power, but the, the other part of the state, the democratically elected piece of the legislature, uh, declining in power, often becoming sort of completely chaotic and, and ceding power uh, totally to the unelected parts of government. Um, so that's a very odd phenomenon, and I think on the questions of sort of regulation, deregulation, it's not simply more or less, but whether we can reground um, the most important parts of our policy apparatus in the actual democratic uh, institutions of government. Uh, and similarly, in, in foreign affairs, this is probably much more the case in Europe than in the U.S., but you see it here too, where, again, you've had um, parts of the, the state has kind of expanded its power but ceded its sovereignty. Um, and, and there's a, a much, at least a, a desire to rethink the, what, what role the actual na na nation state institutions will have in the world. Because as much as we like to think of the nation state as a relic, the fact is that all of our democratic institutions are national ones. And if you get rid of the nation state, what you're really doing is getting rid of democracy. So there's a strong idea of, of going from uh, an idea of globalism to nationalism and a reinvigoration of, of the nation as a political community. What kind of nation do you think America is when Donald Trump talks about America first? Do you have a certain idea of America in your philosophy? Yes, um, I th maybe the easiest way to define it, um, it was actually a National Review contributor who I think lives in uh, Budapest now, John O'Sullivan, um, had, a, had a wonderful line in which he said, America is not simply a nation, it's an idea, and it's not simply an idea, it's a nation. Um, and America in particular has always been defined by, you know, a set of principles. Um, but it's also, it's also grounded in a particular historical memory and, and community. And, and, you know, that includes both good and bad, both slavery and the Civil War, both Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Movement, and so on. And it also includes a particular sense of the future, um, which may not be the same for us as it is for everybody else. And I think a, a, <clears throat> we've lost our ability to define um, what, what, a, what a unique American future would be, much less how to build it together as Americans. Um, so between that, between sort of refinding the balance between principles and people and, um, and, and the, the past and the future, I think is essential to sort of redefining what, what actually constitutes uh, America as, as an independent uh, national entity with an independent uh, existence. Can we try and unpick that a bit more? Because there is obviously a tension between the two bits which John Sullivan was talking about, between the idea of America as a nation and as a, a kind of as a people, because which comes out um, in some of the debates about immigration very clearly. Because 
if the idea of America is just an idea, then presumably anyone can come to America and be and assimilate to that idea and become part, sign up to the American dream and, and be part of it. But part of the attraction of Donald Trump, um, I think, is was uh, an idea that America is also a, a, a place where people live who need to be defended against immigration, against um, both the cultural changes which immigrants bring to the country, but also just the, the disruption to the economy and that, that, that um, rather than defending an idea, you should sort of defend physical people that, that are settled and that, that have, right. have put roots down in, in the United States. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's also, it brings up the question as to, again, uh, the kind of um, our, the changing relationship we have had with those principles. Um, because I think many people would argue, um, and, and to me at least quite convincingly, that the, the, the original founding constitutional principles um, certainly do not preclude uh, enforcing an immigration policy. Certainly the U.S. has had um, you know, more or less restrictive immigration policies at different times in its history, and that was not seen as a violation of founding principles. Um, and many of the founders themselves, um, Ben Franklin, for example, was uh, you know, quite, quite restrictionist on these issues. What does seem to have happened, though, is we have we have taken these principles and kind of again separated them from from our history and our community and our future, and sort of said, well, if as long as you, it's not so much if you move here that and adopt them and become a citizen that makes you a citizen. It's just if you're somewhere anywhere but happen to have these principles, well, then you're just as much a citizen as anyone who is actually legally a citizen. And therefore, how can you possibly um, have have an immigration policy that might privilege citizens over foreigners? Um, at least that's kind of how I see the sort of moral arguments playing out. And um, I think Trump, Trump has, uh, you know, won in part because a lot of people are rejecting that, that kind of um, decline of national sovereignty and, and wanting to say, no, American citizenship means something. It means the American government does have to look after my interests first uh, and, um, and prioritize them. But this whole question of who my interests are and what my means is also very contested because, I mean, I, you know, I think looking at America from the outside, uh, one of the drivers of, of the rise of Trumpism, I think, is the this idea that there was an emerging democratic minor, uh, majority and that the Democrats could become the, the sort of political wing of all the different uh, minorities in the country and promote diversity and stand for, for diversity. And, you know, in many ways, um, Trumpism is uh, a sort of counter mobilization against that you know the people who thought of themselves as the majority and who now feel threatened uh, predominantly sort of white people who live in flyover country who uh, want to behave as a group as well if everyone else is behaving as a group we should behave as a group we should have our rights defended that's one interpretation i would say it's um you know the most hostile one and it sort of suggests that Trumpism is uh, Trump is simply a kind of identity politics of the right um, playing out against the identity politics of the left, uh, and that could happen. I think if 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 we go down that path, um, it will actually be very unfortunate, uh, and we'll end up with a lot of kind of competing tribalisms and a totally ineffective uh, government or state, as as countries with competing tribalisms usually do. On the other hand, though, I think the the other interpretation is that. Um, you know, we have the, the flip side of the supranational globalization is, is subnational identities. 
what's usually called identity politics, wherein one's rights, one's position in society don't come from being a member of the American social contract, being a citizen um, in the full sense of the word, but from being a member of a particular subgroup that is a part of a particular narrative that is assigned certain um, privileges or whatever um, by, by other people that, you know, um, usually the elites of society. Uh, and I, you know, I would like to think anyway that that's what the rejection was against. It was a rejection in the name of national sovereignty and national community in which we're all citizens together and, and are working together to build something rather than simply uh, an attempt to create an identity politics of the right against the identity politics of the left. So one other interesting question is what happens to the idea of American exceptionalism? Because part of the consensus that you were describing earlier of, you know, of America as an exceptional nation was uh, a, a sort of universalism, the fact that America didn't recognize national boundaries when it came to the application of, of universal principles. Um, well, yeah. What, yeah. What, is, what is American exceptionalism? Yeah. That is what it has been interpreted as uh, recently. Um, and I would argue that, that that's a very corrupt and dangerous version of it. And it leads us to do things like um, invade countries and attempt to promote democracy and, and end up creating chaos and destabilization. Uh, but the original form of American exceptionalism is laid out in the Federalist Papers, for example, is not simply that America had been or is a democracy, but that it's a democracy that works. Uh, in other words, there had been lots of democracies before the U.S. Um, in Italian city-states and whatnot, and they'd actually all failed. They'd all succumbed to corruption um, or internal strife and, and, and eventually tyranny. Um, what made America exceptional was not only that we chose our own form of government and we chose to be uh, you know, Republican, but that we could actually make it work. Uh, and, and I think we've lost a great sense of that. And, and you also see it in the sense that you know, we talk a lot now about you know, <clears throat> immigrants and, and, and how important they have, have been to the U.S. And there's no doubt that that's true. But we forget, too, that we, don't, we, we talk about everything that the immigrants bring with them, but nothing about what they actually find here. And for immigrants or anybody to actually be successful, we have to actually create a society and have an economy that can allow for rising wages, social mobility, um, and, and many other things that, that we have lost. So the country actually has to work. For it to be something to be proud of and looked up to and seen as exceptional by the rest of the world, it actually has to be effective both domestically and in foreign policy. And I, and I think America right now offers little example to most people on any of those things. So in some ways, what you're talking about is a sort of Jeffersonian idea of, uh, of American exceptionalism. I don't really think it's Jeffersonian, but... Uh, so who, I mean, who it, do you think it, the... Jeffersonian, uh, you know, Jefferson was, of course, the most enthusiastic about the French Revolution. Um, he was kind of rural agrarian. He, you know, it maybe seems that way in terms of... Jefferson is usually associated with populism, and Trump has come to be associated with populism. Um, but I, I would say it's actually more... Um, you know, it's, it's whenever you try to apply these one-word descriptors, they always obscure something. But, of course, there, there are also, you know, aside from the populism, there are many Hamiltonian elements in, in, uh, in you know, at least my, my views, and I think in Trump's as well, which is that, you know, Hamilton, of course, is very famous for establishing tariffs and, and trade protectionism. Um, he's very famous for wanting a strong national uh, uh, sense of the country rather than a state sort of decentralized uh, sense of the, of the nation. So, so it, it's hard to sort of 
pin it uh, or define it in, in either one or the other, but I, I certainly wouldn't define it as Jeffersonian. So if we look at that, that maybe a bit more on those sort of economic issues, I think that's one of the other really interesting things about uh, certainly what President Trump seems to be uh, laying out in terms of his hierarchy of interests. When he looks at Asia, he does seem to worry most about the trade deficits and economic issues um, and seems to be willing to, to use other questions, whether it's Taiwan's status or um, military guarantees to other countries in defense of, of, a, of an economic vision, which seems to be kind of almost the opposite way around from traditional, well, certainly the last few presidents who have seen economic issues as part of the mix in Asia. Uh, they pushed for TPP and for, for, for other elements, but they were there in service of a geopolitical vision. Do you think that's true? Is there, is there a kind of change in, in the hierarchy? I think there is a change. I might try to define it differently, though, which is if you well, take TPP, which is a good illustrative example, um, there were always two trans-Pacific partnerships, right? Trade deal, which the U.S. was trying to sign with 12 um, other countries across Asia. There were always sort of two justifications for that. One was the economist justification, which is that it will you know, reduce trade barriers, make make every economy more efficient, increase consumption and so on. It was just economically, more free trade is economically good. It offered more free trade, therefore it was good. Um, and then there was the kind of diplomatic, geo-strategic aspect, which is that it would allow us to, um, you know, create a, an Asian trading order that would, would, you know, counter China and, and so on, which in a way is a very mercantilistic uh, motivation. Uh, now, I don't know that that would would work. Uh, I, I'm not sure either. Both of those um, arguments have kind of been disc discredited by previous history. Namely, everyone thought that China's accession to the WTO would reduce China's uh, tariffs more than U.S. and therefore, you know, the U.S. would uh, would export more to China. Well, you know, the, the trade balance since then has, has been obvious. And, uh, and, and, you know, I don't think a Chinese accession to the WTO has really um, made them play by the rules any better or constrained their, their rising power in Asia. So it's hard to see the hard to find either rationale compelling. But the fact that there always has been two rationales, um, even even in recent trade policy, is, is I think, a meaningful thing. And, and it, yes, I think, if anything, Trump is going to um, simply revert to the second, more kind of geostrategic, um, interest-based, if you will, economic nationalist uh, approach in addition to a geostrategic kind of American interest-based foreign policy approach on these questions rather than kind of the uh, confusion between the diplomatic and the economic. So what kind of world order flows from the uh, project, the political project which you're describing at home? I mean, you, know, you talked about getting less involved in foreign adventures, having a, a kind of more uh, tougher definition of what the American interest is. But is there also a vision of what kind of global architecture uh, would support this vision? Yeah, I mean, in many cases, people have sort of ascribed to Trump a desire or willingness to to eliminate a lot of the present aspect of the world order, like NATO, for example. But I actually think a lot of it is is designed to make it work better. 
Um, NATO, for instance, is not going to collapse because Trump has pointed out its obvious weaknesses. Those weaknesses are known to everyone, most especially the Russians. Um, but if NATO is going to have any chance of surviving, it's because we, we will be able to address those weaknesses. And the only way to address them is to be honest about them and to make the alliance work um, for the interests of all of its members. Uh, and, and so I think that's much more the motivation. And I'm not sure that the current order, you know, what we've forgotten is that much of the current order has relied upon and was built by American strength uh, and, and foreign policy and defense superiority. And I think if we don't have that, the world order won't survive very well. But if we can restore that, and also if everyone is a bit more honest about what their interests are, I think actually it will be, uh, it will be much improved. I think this whole idea of strength versus weakness is very important. Because when you are basically growing as a, as a country, then people are likely to give you the benefit of the doubt and to kind of overestimate your power in different areas. So setting up multilateral institutions can be a, an amplifier of your power and can be a way for you to be heard and to have your writ um, work more effectively without going through the transaction costs of dealing with everything on an individual basis. Um, but when you're getting weaker, um, these institutions can look more like straitjackets rather than power magnifiers. And there does seem to be a sense from the president that, that being embedded in multilateral institutions simply allows America to be bossed around and outvoted on different things and to, to be taken for a ride in different ways, which is reflected in the doubts about NAFTA, about the World Trade Organization, about the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but also seems to be there in some of the skepticism which the president and some of his proxies have voiced about the European Union. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't see it necessarily in, in quite, or the, the outcomes, may, we may get to the same outcomes, but I don't think the rationale is quite the same. Namely, I don't think it's, it's, it's simply a question of, of rising versus weakening. What I think um, that, that is constraining, what seems constraining is more that uh, in many cases we've confused means for ends. Um, and in many cases, we have, we have um, allowed people to take advantage of this order, um, maybe, maybe allowing mercantilistic China to become the world's largest economy, um, at least by purchasing power parity, um, while, while maintaining mercantil, uh, their own mercantilism and pretending that you know, everything else is free trade, uh, is how we've been taken advantage of. It's not simply being outvoted on, on issues uh, uh, or, or anything like that, um, which I, I don't think has been a major issue. It's more just confusing uh, means for ends and confusing the ends of others uh, for the ends of our own. So this is a, a podcast um, which has got a lot of Europeans listening to it. And one of the big things which certainly seems to be worrying Angela Merkel, who's meeting Donald Trump um, probably as we speak, um, is the fact that Trump seems to be so hostile to the European Union as a political entity. He was very supportive of the Brexit vote um, and various people have talked about other countries leaving the European Union, not necessarily uh, as a bad thing, but as an opportunity. Um, uh, and that is a big break with American presidents for the last few decades who've not just been supportive of, uh, of the EU, they've actually encouraged countries to, to get involved in it and, and put pressure on people like Britain to, to stay in the European Union and to get involved with it. How, what sort of uh, role do you think the European Union plays in, in this sort of Trumpian worldview? 
Well, I don't know how much role it plays in his worldview, but it's certainly an important issue. And I think American policy in the past has kind of taken the view that a more integrated Europe is good for Europe, and it's therefore good for America, and it makes everybody stronger. Um, the problem is that the facts just kind of haven't uh, borne that out. And the more integrated the EU has become, the more problematic it has become. And I, you know, just to maybe play a bit contrarian with, with some of the history, I know there's, you know, there seems to be the alternative presented out there sometime that if Europe isn't united, it's going to be at war or we'll have, you know, this is a lot better than the 30s as if that were the alternative. But I actually think the lesson that we learned in the 30s is that bad, bad economics leads to bad politics. And the euro um, seems to be very bad uh, economics. And I think it's leading to some very bad politics. And so it's unclear to me exactly what role the U.S. might play. I mean, it's certainly not the U.S.'s role to either um, uphold or, or uh, break up the euro or tell the Europeans what to do on that. But it, it also, at the same time, you know, I think it's interesting, of course, that Angela Merkel is the lead defender of the euro. And, the, you know, sometimes the media presents this as some great moral um, demonstration. But in, in fact, the, the eurozone has become just another organ of German economic domination. Um, and the U.S. is starting to see that. And the U.S. is starting to get tired of, of Germany's own uh, kind of trade mercantilism um, cloaked under veils of, of high sounding moral principle. Um, so I actually think, uh, you know, leaving aside the euro, we could see a bit more tension on, on economic and maybe other issues between the U.S. and Germany um, on, on these co concerns. And do you think that there will be uh, an attempt to try and encourage countries to to leave the European Union and to sort of hasten the breakup of the European Union? Because it does sound like there is a sort of underlying belief in what you're saying that the world should be ordered around strong uh, nation states that have more control over their affairs rather than the sort of siren call of globalism and cosmopolitan political projects. I mean, there are sort of Trumpian uh, surrogates who have compared the European Union with the Soviet Union and uh, argued that it should break up in the same way that the Soviet Union did. Look, I can tell you, for me personally, um, if I lived in Europe, uh, I suspect that I would be very skeptical of of the euro uh, and very skeptical of the EU, at least as it's presently constituted. And I would probably desire, if not the breakup, so to speak, but a significant rollback uh, in the centralizing power uh, of the EU uh, commission and so forth. That said, that's my personal view. I don't think the U there should be any formal U.S. policy on, on whether to uh, encourage or, or discourage um, issues like that. That's the, what's best for Europeans is for them to decide. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't confuse the, what we thought was a means for a greater European uh, prosperity and stabilization uh, for the end. And if the, Euro, uh, if, if the Eurozone is no longer effective in, in producing those ends, then we shouldn't seek to maintain it as a means simply for its own sake. So maybe last thing we could talk a bit about is the, the use of force, because um, you were, sounded like you were being quite skeptical about some of the wars which American administrations have, have pursued in the past, um, such as the Iraq war, Af in the war in Afghanistan, maybe. Um, what kinds of, where does the use of military force fit into this worldview? I think, I think on force, um, you know, it, it's... Again, it's not a doctrinaire policy for or against force or even for or against 
interventionism. We should do these things when they're in our interest. I think the problem has been actually a certain moral woolly-mindedness and a refusal to actually predicate a foreign policy or the use of force on our interests. Uh, and so we, we, the only time we think we can use force is when we dress it up in really elaborate language about promoting democracy and whatnot. And the problem with that is that that leads to a, to a very abstract and diffuse and kind of um, uncertain goal that, that allow, results in the use of force for unproductive, counterproductive, often very bad uh, reasons and uses. Um, oddly enough, I think, you know, the Nobel Prize winner Obama was was probably much more uh, much more cynical about the use of force in which he just ordered do drone strikes whenever he thought you know he needed to, um, and he didn't really talk about it. Uh, and that probably was more effective than attempting to create democracies in Afghanistan or whatever. So if we take the wars of the last twenty years or so, which ones do you think were legitimate and which ones do you think were illegitimate? Um, well, the first the first. Uh, I think the first Gulf War um, was legitimate, and it was it was executed very well. I think Afghanistan was also uh, legitimate, but uh, it was it was executed extremely poorly, and it sort of ran off the rails of of actually just uh, uh, eliminating the terrorists and and the and the conditions or the the people that were directly involved in the terrorism to this idea that we need to create some kind of democracy in Afghanistan. And then pretty soon that idea evolved into, well, the only person um, uh, who can um, who can maintain this is the current president, um, forget Kazari? Karzai. Karzai, yeah. Uh, who, who, of course, you know, was incredibly corrupt and, and, and all that. So we ended up kind of actually over, presiding over a sham election in the name of democracy, not to mention kind of running around kind of incoherently uh, using force and not using force. Um, so that was the problem there. I think the... The Iraq War, the second Iraq War was, you know, the original justification, again, was actually very interest-based. If, if, in fact, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, if, in fact, you were planning or to use them in attack or give them to terrorists to use in attack, that's a perfectly sensible approach. But it turns out that we were completely wrong on that. And I, I personally think it was, you know, I don't, I don't think Bush lied or things like that. I think it was, you know, incompetence more than anything else. But anyway, we were wrong. And instead of admitting that, we had to come up with a new justification for why we were there, which was democracy promotion and all that. And, that, and that's what le what's led to a lot of the strategic incoherence. And what about the Balkan Wars? Were you, do you think that the U.S. was right to get involved in Bosnia and Kosovo? Or do you think it should have uh, stayed away? I am not as knowledgeable about that one to take a strong stand. Uh, I would say that it, I'm quite skeptical from what I know about it, and it certainly, it um, we did it in such a way as to inflame uh, perhaps tensions with Russia and elsewhere, um, and I'm not sure exactly what we... Um, what we benefited from it. And I don't know that we even really solved the underlying sources of the uh, tension. Okay. Well, we've covered quite a lot of ground. We've got one more thing left to do, which is our, our bookshelf um, segment. So um, obviously anyone who wants to understand the intellectual foundations of Trumpism should go to uh, Julius's website, which is www.americanaffairsjournal.org. But what, if you were putting together a reading list of either books, blog posts, magazines, articles, what kind of four or five things do you think any 
one who's curious um, in some of the intellectual foundations of this new political movement should turn to? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I, to, to start a kind of a, a more theoretical level, I mean, I, I just wrote a 9,000 word essay on uh, James Burnham's managerial revolution uh, in the first, um, first issue of, of our magazine. And, and I think that's an interesting book that's been kind of overlooked and, and discusses kind of the, the changes both in economics and in, and in politics and the link between those two um, that has maybe led to the underlying dissatisfaction um, economically and politically with the sort of neoliberal order uh, and, and how it's, it's not so liberal and why that is. Um, so I think that would be an interesting one. If you're looking for, um, you know, other, other people that are also trying to think through Trumpism, but in, in kind of a much different way, maybe a more, uh, I would say, a way more in line with the conventional republicanism of the past, you could check out the Claremont Review of Books. Um, there's also another new site called American Greatness, amgreatness.com, um, that, you know, we're, we're a quarterly and, and look at kind of larger, you know, theoretical long-term issues. Um, amgreatness.com does much more with the kind of day-to-day -day, um, political back and forth um, and, and gives you a sympathetic uh, Trump perspective on those issues um, if you're interested. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, other, other kind of significant voices um, that I think are, are out there are, are someone like F.H. Um, Buckley, uh, who, whose book is called The Way Back. And it talks about how sort of America has failed um, to, to kind of offer the promise uh, of American life for new generations and, and how it's not simply um, a lack of free markets or too high taxes, which are the usual Republican uh, reasons. So another kind of critique of the right from within the right um, that I think, uh, you know, is another alternative for, for Trumpism. Great. Thank you very much, Julius. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do let everybody else know about it. Can you post about it on Facebook, tweet about it? And above all, please give us a review and a ranking on the site which you're using to find this, whether it's iTunes, SoundCloud, Mixcloud, or whatever other platform you're listening to us to from. But for now, from Julius Krein and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Pauline Goemi. <laughs> <laughs>